0: Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to James chapter 3, starting at verse 18. If you're new with us, we, uh, as we preach through the Bible here, we like to work through books expositionally, which means just kind of section by section, little by little. And uh, we're, uh, we've been working this summer through the book of James. Let's see if I can get my iPad to straighten up here. And the reason we like to work expositionally is we like to see each text within its context so we can understand. So you'll see us moving a little paragraph, sometimes just in sentences, sometimes in whole sections. And uh, so we've been working through James. We'll continue into the fall. And by the way, we we love to meet outside like this in the summer. We do move indoors over there as it gets a little colder. Uh, We'll be doing that. So James chapter three this morning. James chapter three starts with this question. Who is wise... And understanding amongst you, who is wise and understanding amongst you? It's a it's a it's a pretty good and penetrating question that James poses to all the little churches of the dispersion. These churches that he's writing to, and if you remember, they are struggling with what he calls a worldly double-mindedness. He describes them in uh, chapter four. Uh, with these words. This is what he says, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They are are claiming devotion to the Lord, but living for and and like the world. They're divided. They're double-minded. They're claiming to love God, but then pursuing wealth and privilege and talking a good game about faith, but with that same tongue ripping each other apart. They're saying they are religious, but then not caring about equity and justice for the underprivileged. So James says to them, who do you consider wise amongst you? Who are you holding up as the people of wisdom? It's a great question to kind of expose double-mindedness, and I think a good question for us. Think of that question today. How would you answer that? Who are wise? Who are the wise? Well, if we're honest, I think we tend kind of naturally to go straight into intellectual categories. We think of those with a high IQ and those with a lot of education and those we consider clever. But at the same time, we know that wisdom is, is probably a little more than that. In fact, if you think about it, it seems like it's when people can take the knowledge they have and then develop this kind of bigger picture understanding, this kind of view from above that gives them insight, at least into a particular issue that that the rest of us don't have. That's who we consider wise. The best analogy I can think of would be like an air traffic controller, right? they have that view from above, or at least they have that view of the screen that shows all the planes in the sky and where they're going, and where they're gonna land and their altitudes and everything that's going on. And because of that, they they know what's happening. They know why a plane is delayed or why it uh, is circling or why it's coming in early. Now, the rest of us are like the people sitting in the airport We have no idea why the plane is late. We're just frustrated. We're hoping that we're gonna, you know, catch our flight in time. We're hoping they don't lose our luggage. That's all we know because we don't have that view from above. That's kind of what we think wisdom is. Think of it in certain areas. Think of it in the economic world. Think of uh, Warren Buffett and Alan Greenspan. They seem to have this big picture understanding that the rest of us lack. They see how the economic world works and they're able to read the markets and their understanding has made them rich and their counsel sought after. We want to glean from their financial wisdom. Think of a guy like Elon Musk. I mean, this guy is kind of a genius. He seems to know so much about everything. He seems to have it figured out, seems to see where things are going and even kind of get ahead of it and and direct it. Nobody's gonna fool him. Wouldn't you like to hear his advice on something? He's pretty wise, isn't he? Or think of the political pundits of our day, those guys who have their own you know, talk shows or cable shows, and they gain a following because they seem to have so much knowledge and insight, and they can kind of dissect the political landscape from above and explain it to the rest of us peons. And we we know that that guy that we look to, he's never going to lose in a debate. And we kind of put ourselves under their wisdom, at least in a certain area of politics. These are the wise people of our world. And of course, we tend to think this way spiritually as well. Wise Christians are those we imagine to have that special spiritual insight. They walk so closely with the Lord that... That in some sense, they've they got to peek into the you know, control room. They, can, they have a sense of where things are going and the whys and hows of what God is doing. So we go to them for their wisdom. But James, you know what James says? Nope. That's not wisdom. We are thinking wrong about Wisdom. Not that understanding and spiritual insight aren't valuable and important and in a sense a part of it, but they are not what wisdom is ultimately about. They are not what someone who is wise is about. They are not the final measure. How do we know who's wise amongst us? Well, he answers it right away in verse 13. What does he say? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wise person, James says, is the person, is not the person who has all the knowledge and special insight, but the person who shows it in their works and deeds. Whatever they have, whatever insight, it comes out in their life. The one who takes this theological knowledge, whether vast or tiny, and lets it shape their actions in righteous living before God you see, again, James will not let them double-mindedly compartmentalize life. He won't let us say, you know, that politician guy, gosh, he is so wise. I mean, yes, his personal life is a mess, but, I mean, look at his insight. He is wise. Nope, James says, nope. Or that investment guy, gosh, he is so wise. Yes, he's kind of a misogynist big, but have you seen his returns? Nope, he's not wise. Or that famous theologian apologist. He's so wise, nobody can stump him. He has the most intellectually robust answers. Yes, he was caught with a secretary, but man, that guy, nope, he's not wise. Wisdom acts rightly despite the size and depth of its understanding. A few years ago, we went through the book of Daniel. And if you don't know the book, it's actually a wisdom book. The, the, Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are wise men, 10 times wiser than any of the men of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And you know when their great kind of wise moment happens? It's in, uh, it's in the story of the fiery furnace, right? When Nebuchadnezzar sets up that statue, that giant statue, 60 cubits or whatever, and everybody's supposed to bow down when the music plays. Everybody in the kingdom has to stop and bow down. And, of course, when this happens three times in a row, the only people left standing are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Dan. They're not going to bow. Finally, the king is so upset, he says, I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace if you don't bow down. Just gets the fire stoked up, and he says this to them. Daniel chapter 3. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And this is their answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't have any great insight into what is going to happen, about what God's going to do. They have no peek into the control room. But they act on what they do know. That their God is sovereign; that Nebuchadnezzar is not; that he reigns; and ultimately, they know he's going to save them. So they will not bow. They are wise. They choose to trust and obey God, even when they don't get it. And you know what I love about this uh, this definition of wisdom? It means I got a chance. I can have an IQ of a plant, and I can be wise. like that scene in Dumber and Dumber. I got a chance. (laughs) Kerry Hughes, the guy who got a D in high school algebra, who failed his English entrance exam into college, who failed third year Greek in seminary the first time. I did, did start to get it the second time. It's like it's a whole different language. The Greeks have a different word for everything. Even I can be wise can act in wisdom. So can the six-year-old who has no understanding of what's going on in the world. They can act on what they do know of God and choose to obey. The teenager who's struggling with what God is doing in their life and they don't understand, they can choose to trust and obey and be wise. These struggling Christians that James is writing to They don't know why they've lost their houses and and jobs and are experiencing poverty and they've had to flee. That's why they're part of the dispersion. They've been persecuted. They have to take off and they're facing poverty. They don't know why it's happening. They're beginning to compromise and act like the world and take on its mindset and its double-mindedness. And James is challenging them to be wise, to let their basic Christian knowledge actually shape their lives and actions despite the cost. Now, James doesn't leave it here. He doesn't say, well, you know, wisdom is acting right, so be good, the end. No, he goes on for the next few verses to tease out the nature of this real wisdom, which he calls, by the way, if you notice, wisdom from above. That is, it's from God, it's from heaven. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse six. 17 he said this every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father that's the kind of gift wisdom is a gift from God it's from above this is one of the reasons that we can all have it it's a gift to his children wisdom from above now to help us understand this wisdom and bring clarity James compares it to another wisdom if you notice in the text, there's kind of wisdom from above and wisdom from below. It's only a couple verses here, but he kind of weaves back and forth between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And look at the wisdom from below, what he calls it. Uh, but verse, uh, verse 15, this is not wisdom from abo- that comes down from above, but certainly earthly, but, uh, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's about as low as you can get. When he says wisdom from below, it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We've got wisdom from heaven, we've got wisdom from hell. That's what we have in this text. That's the structure of our passage. So what we're going to do now is look at three components of wisdom from above that James lays out here. Real wisdom that acts in righteousness and kind of compare and contrast to the wisdom from below as we go. So the first component we're gonna look at is the heart of wisdom. If you're taking notes, point one, the heart of wisdom from above. We're gonna see the heart of wisdom, the ways of wisdom, and the results of wisdom from above. But we're starting with the heart. What would you think would be the heart of wisdom? That kind of core attitude that would foster real wisdom in your life? Well, it's very clear in verse one. Look what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's something at the core of wisdom that is meekness. This is, this is the idea that if you dug down through all the layers of wisdom at the center, you would find meekness. This is not what we would naturally expect. I mean, the wise of this world, do you associate them with being meek? No, they're the admired ones. They're the ones with the answers. I think of them as proud and, and even a bit smug. He or she commands the office, moves fast, makes tough decisions, demands respect. But James says wisdom, the ability to act rightly before God is actually rooted in meekness. Now, biblically, meekness is a relational heart posture that kind of acts in two directions. It's, it's a relational heart posture that acts, first of all, in humility towards God. This is why Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, because they are humble before God. This is why the scriptures say over and over again, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of Of wisdom that's not fear as in you know afraid that God is gonna smash me at any moment because I'm bad it's the reverent meekness that comes when we see God for who he is his holy awesomeness his loving sovereign mercy we see him as ruler and Savior And we're humbled before him. We see God for who he is. And we see ourselves in light of that. And we are meek. That is what Daniel and his wise friends were. They didn't have all the knowledge. They didn't know what God was going to do in their situation. But they knew who he was. Wisdom isn't about knowing why and how. But who God is. They knew that he was their sovereign, loving king, and that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, even though he had all the pomp of the world. So they didn't fear man. They feared God. They were humble before him, they were meek, and it allowed wisdom. But meekness has a second kind of relational dynamic it's bi directional, it's, it's this way towards God in humility, but it also looks this way horizontally. To others. It has a gentleness towards others. This is is how we tend to think of the word meek. We think of somebody meek, we think they're they're gentle. But it it's not here gentle at just as in in soft or timid. It's about a selflessness. The excellent New Testament scholar Alex Motier defines meekness here as the character of being self-subdued self-subdued it's that ability as i interact with others to put aside my own interests to squelch the tendency in me to always want to be first and right and validated and instead lovingly tolerate and embrace others even when it's hard self-subduing gentleness Wisdom is rooted in a heart of meekness that's humble towards God. And it's gentle this way. This is so contrary to how our world thinks and how we tend to think. And how they were thinking in this little church. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You see, many scholars believe that there are those in this little, these little churches of the dispersion that are ambitious to be teachers. We see that in three, one, not many of you. What does you say, three verse one? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. There's all kinds of them that want to be the teachers. And as they're doing this, they're trying to be this, they're promoting their, their, their selves, their own wisdom. They're boasting in it. They want people to look at how clever they are. And, Look at their strategic thinking and learn from their insights and their special knowledge. They are the guys today that would, you know, have the seminars. And they're boasting to draw people into them. Look at the wisdom God has blessed me with. And James says, Don't boast and be false to the truth. Don't lie as if your wisdom is from above. How does he know it's not from above? How does he know they're liars? because it's clear that their wisdom is coming out of hearts that are the opposite of meek. They're driven by two things, he says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. All their smarts and knowledge, as spiritual as they may seem, are really just about themselves. They're using them for their own advancement and promotion. And relationally, they're bitter towards others, especially other teachers, because they see them as rivals, a threat to their dominance. In fact, the phrase bitter jealousy here is more literally translated harsh zeal. Their wisdom is a lot like that harsh, strategic, fighting cleverness that is so respected in the political and business world that harsh zeal where a gentle spirit is seen as weakness to be exploited and competitors are to be crushed. You rejoice when they fail and all that really matters is the bottom line and all your cleverness and knowledge is used to win no matter what. In that world selfish ambition and rivalry is the way of wisdom. It's how we get things done. It's how we advance. It's admired. But James says, verse 15 and 16, look at it with me, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be discord and every vile practice. My friends, we cannot let wisdom from below In the church, we must guard against it. We can't let it in under the guise of common sense and getting things done and being strategic. That's how it sneaks in. Church growth strategists love this kind of wisdom. No, to do that And to pass it off as godly wisdom because it seems to work is worldly and ultimately he says demonic we need to watch out for it in our own hearts here are a few questions of of self-examination do i always have to have the last word Do I make sure that I give as good as I get when there's some kind of relational struggle? Am I harsh in the name of being right? Does it kind of hurt when others around me succeed in ways I'd like to succeed? There's a saying I've I've heard before. It says, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. I looked it up on the internet because I thought, where's that from? From a guy named Gore Vidal, he was an American writer. This is what it says in you know Wikipedia. He was an American writer and public intellectual, known for his epigrammatic wit, erudition, and patrician manner. In other words, he's a wise man of our day. That's wisdom from below, driven by selfishness and envy. And what does it bring? As verse sixteen says. It brings disorder and every vile practice. That's the idea of of, of dissension and discord and division and every corruption. In other words, the church is really messed up when this comes in. One of the words that came out of World War II, uh, one of the new words was the word snafu. It's a military anacronym, which means situation, normal, all fouled up. Some would say the F. stands for something else, but it's fouled up for church, for sure. There's an, apparently a newer military term for a situation like this. It's FUB, which is, means fouled up beyond belief. But I think both terms capture what James is saying here. It messes everything up especially relationally beyond belief. My friends, I have to say the best example of this happening in the modern evangelical church has been a lot of what's gone on in the past few years of COVID. What a total snafu, what a fub for the church. It was so revealing of the wrong kind of wisdom dominating congregations and hearts political opinions held up as gospel truth biblical imperatives ignored in the name of cultural war strategy divisions and discord in so many churches from pride and harsh zeal destroying congregations I know of a pastor friend in California that wouldn't go political and just tried to faithfully lead his congregation according to the teachings of scripture. A congregation that served faithfully for years, but there was one family in the church that didn't like that he wouldn't take a certain political position. Not only did they leave, but they then had dinners with each family in the church, trying to snipe them away to their mutiny, eventually effectively destroying this little church and its gospel witness, worldly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom from hell, dividing and destroying. But wisdom from above comes out of a heart of meekness that's humble before God and self-subduing and gentle with each other. And look at its ways. Look at its conduct here. You want to see real wisdom in action? Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wow, that is not a list you would get from the world when it comes to wisdom. He doesn't speak about intellect or cleverness or talent or clear thinking or out-strategizing others. He talks about qualities and actions of relational care, actions that promote harmony and unity in the body. It's such a contrast to earthly wisdom which only brings strife and division. No, wisdom from above, he says, is pure. And look how he says it. Wisdom from above is first pure. That is, its main encompassing quality is pure. The main way that the wise person acts towards others in this world is in purity. And James isn't talking about kind of a stuffy prudishness when he says purity. He's, he's talking about a sincere relational a purity that fosters or, or works towards the other's goodness and righteousness, a purity that protects the other's integrity, a purity that guards each other from defiling sin. That's wisdom and action. Secondly, he says, it's peaceable, acting gently with each other and open to reason not competing out of harsh, selfish zeal, but listening and reasoning together. Man, we could have used a lot more of that in the church in the past few years, couldn't we? Wouldn't it have been nice if Christians had been known for their reasonableness and peace during these turbulent times? We should be, if we're wise what else he says it's full of mercy god's wisdom in our life looks like mercy mercy to those who have wronged us it's ready to forgive so as to restore relationship talk about radical in our modern culture that is always ready to cancel people and all its woke wisdom No, Christian wisdom looks like mercy. Look at the last words, it's impartial. Striving striving to treat everybody, rich, poor, powerful, weak with equity, fairness. It's sincere. It acts towards each other with, with one face. That's what sincerity means. We're not two faced, no hypocrisy our words and our actions match. This is wisdom from above. It strives for relational harmony through purity and peace. It loves peace and care more than selfish ambition. It puts consideration of others before one upmanship and winning. It's, a, it's reasonable and ready to forgive. And this relational peaceableness has a knock-on effect look at the results look at the results of wisdom we've seen the heart we've seen the ways look at the results verse 18 and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace that's the result of wisdom from above a harvest of righteousness wisdom from below The wisdom of this world, what, brings discord and every evil practice, but wisdom from above brings a harvest of righteousness. I think of that in two ways. First, a harvest of righteousness in our lives. As we live out such wisdom, it creates this kind of relational investment, these seeds planted that, that, that come to harvest in lives that are increasingly pleasing to God, and increasingly right and fulfilling with each other. Plant these good seeds in wisdom. Plant the purity and the peace and the mercy and the reason, the sincerity, these seeds of relational harmony, and they multiply themselves in a harvest of righteousness in your life, in the life of the body. But secondly, I think the harvest here, as is often pictured in Scripture, has an impact beyond our own lives. The language here about godly wisdom suggests a a radically unique and and different way of life from the world that is is attractive and compelling. It's that they will know we are Christians by our love idea. They will see it as we live in peace and mercy and gentleness and sincerity and mercy with one another. And our deeds relationally as, as they match our gospel words, it will be a powerful witness that will bring a harvest because it shows them Christ. It points to Jesus because who is really the wise one amongst us? Well, ultimately, it's Jesus, isn't it? He's the wise one who is truly amongst us. He's the wisdom of God, as 1 Corinthians tells us. He's the meek one who is gentle and lowly of heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine, great book on that, how that is the one description Jesus gives of his own heart. Gentle and lowly. He is the one who humbled himself He wasn't about selfish ambition was he he humbled himself although he was god he did not consider equality with god a thing to be grasped after but made himself nothing and became our servant dying on the cross and in doing so he's the one who made peace real peace for all of us with god he was literally sown in peace his very life bringing a harvest of righteousness to our lives, to this world. Wisdom from above in our lives shows the world Jesus. And you know, we can only be wise, ultimately. We can only really live out this wisdom from God and demonstrate it in the world as we rest in Him. as we rely on His Spirit in us. By the way, the fruits of the Spirit, you notice how they kind of mimic the ways of wisdom? It's His Spirit in us. As we look to His Word, where His wisdom is taught and shown. And as we pray to His Father, our Father, who gives it from above. Remember how James started this book chapter 1 verse 5 if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him let's pray Father we thank you for your son your wisdom Our Savior. Help us to rest in him and be wise. Help us to act in humility before you and service of others. By your Spirit, Lord, give us purity and peaceableness and sincerity and goodness. Give us a harvest of righteousness in our lives and in this world, we ask. Give us the ability to act rightly before you, even when we don't understand your ways. May we be meek and trust in who you are and be wise. In your son's name, amen.